Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Caitlin Rose Case was born on January 25, 1989, and grew up in Louisiana. In 2022, at the age of 33, Caitlin relocated from Houma, Louisiana to Blackhawk, Colorado to work an engineering maintenance position at the Lodge Casino. Caitlin was described as super kind to everyone she met and a very trusting person. On July 31, 2022, Caitlin flew back to Louisiana from Colorado with plans to spend a few days with her family, purchase a black GMC Envoy from someone she knew, and then drive it back to her home in Colorado. On August 4th, Caitlin began the nearly 20-hour drive back to her home in Colorado. She had stayed in touch with her family during the first day of the trip, but by the afternoon of day two, she had unfortunately gotten lost after her GPS navigation inside the car stopped working. It also wasn't helped by her poor cell phone service. After getting lost, she called her dad, and he stayed on the phone with her and tried to help her figure out where she was and how to get back on track. However, he wasn't exactly sure where she was. Around 5 p.m., the call dropped, and she was never heard from again. Call records showed that she was traveling northbound on Highway 271 near Bogota, Texas. After the call dropped, her phone continued to ping off cell phone towers and showed she had continued driving north on Highway 271 toward Paris, Texas. At the rate she was going, she should have arrived in Paris, Texas around 6 p.m. Her dad kept trying to call her cell phone, but sadly, she never answered. Her family knew service was likely spotty, especially if she ended up off the beaten path, but they figured she would reach back out at some point. They continued trying to call Caitlin throughout the night, but she never answered. The next day, her father called the local police department in Homa to report his daughter missing. Homa entered Caitlin's information into the NCIC database and immediately released license plate reader alerts in nine surrounding states. On August 7th, two days after Caitlin went missing, her cell phone records showed it pinged off a tower around Hugo, Oklahoma. Homa then alerted the Oklahoma authorities, and they searched the area but found no sign of Caitlin or her GMC envoy. The next day, August 8th, Caitlin's dad decided to drive to Hugo and search for his daughter. However, much like Oklahoma authorities, he was unable to find any signs of her. On August 12th, one week after Caitlin vanished, her brother was shown how to use the Find My Phone feature by a Best Buy employee. This allowed him to pinpoint the exact location of her phone. Caitlin's father contacted the Hugo Police Department with the new information, and along with the authorities, they entered the private gated property where the phone was shown to be located. 
after entering the property, Caitlin's father would find her GMC Envoy. It appeared as if someone was trying to dispose of the vehicle in the Kiamachi River, but it snagged on the path of the river embankment and became cradled between two small trees overhanging a 75-foot cliff near Frogville, Oklahoma. After being located, a local wrecker spent three to four hours bringing her vehicle back to solid ground. However, there was no sign of Caitlin, but all of her belongings were in the vehicle, including both her personal and work cell phones. There was also no sign of a struggle. Authorities said the Kiamachi River is not very deep and likely wouldn't have submerged the entire car, so they believed someone was just looking to get rid of it as quickly as possible. A relative of the property owner said that in the middle of the night on August 5th, the same day Caitlin was last heard from, two cars came speeding down that gated drive, and only one returned. Unfortunately, the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation didn't secure the area as a crime scene and possibly lost vital clues. Caitlin's family organized a search and rescue group with the help of tracking dogs, but strangely, the property owner's son came forward and asked them to leave. Authorities traced her route using cell phone data, Wi-Fi data, license plate readers, 911 calls, and credit card usage. One of the 911 calls received at 10.53 p.m. on August 5th was not dispatched by the 911 center and would have been crucial in finding out who was in control of the vehicle and might have been able to save her. The family reviewed all the information they were given and learned of several gaps regarding Caitlin's last known location where she was speaking to her father. They figured out that all communication had stopped in the solar plant area south of Cunningham, Texas. There was no GPS data from 5.16 p.m. to 6.59 p.m., with the exception of a Wi-Fi hit at 6.10 p.m. on CR 17,300 Road southeast of Cunningham, where supposedly an eyewitness spoke to Caitlin in his driveway. When he spoke with Caitlin, she informed him that she had made a wrong turn. OSBI mapping then has her vehicle leaving Cunningham at 6.59 p.m., at 9.17 p.m., a license plate reader captured her car leaving Paris, Texas, going northwest on a local road called FM-79. What's also strange is Hugo, Oklahoma, is a straight shot north of Paris, but her car was seen heading northwest, away from Hugo. Yet, two and a half hours later, her car appeared in Hugo. At 11.46 p.m., less than an hour after that mysterious 911 call, her car entered the private property in Hugo, Oklahoma, where it would remain until it was found a week later. Law enforcement found CCTV footage of her along her route, which they found by searching her bank records. They released a picture of Caitlin at the gas station that evening, and at that time, everything appeared fine. Authorities believe that Caitlin met with foul play, her vehicle was taken over by someone, and then they attempted to hide it. There are a lot of locations involved in this case, but I will try and sum it up. It appears she was heading northwest from the interstate toward Paris, Texas, got lost, and ended up in Cunningham, Texas, where she encountered a homeowner in his driveway. She then appears to have made it to Paris, Texas, and continued northwest on FM-79. Over two hours later, her car ended up in Hugo, Texas, and then finally in Frogville, which is southeast of Hugo, where it was ultimately dumped near the Kiamachi River. As of April 2023, 
Caitlin has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Gregory James Hart grew up in Norwood, Massachusetts, and graduated from Norwood High School in 2005. At the age of 20, Greg had recently moved to Dedham, Massachusetts, and graduated with honors from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He was described as very smart, passionate about reading, music, and dogs, and had a lot of drive for success. On March 13, 2010, Greg left home at about 10 p.m. and drove to meet up with some friends in Providence, Rhode Island. Greg had just landed his first job at a company called Meditech and was heading out to celebrate. He had also recently taken an exam to become a Navy aviator. Greg, along with Zachary Pico, Zachary's girlfriend Megan O'Keefe, and William McClendon, who was home on leave from the Air Force, took a cab to the Red Room nightclub at One Fox Place in Providence. While there, Greg strangely called William, who he was with at the club. He spoke to William for about eight minutes before allegedly getting up and leaving at 1.40 a.m. This was the last time Greg was ever seen alive. For the next two days, Greg's family and friends searched the area for him. On day two of searching, friends that came in from Greg's hometown, who were unfamiliar with the area, found his body tangled in river debris about a mile from the club. The medical examiner determined that Greg's death was due to an accidental drowning after becoming intoxicated and falling into the nearby, fenced-off Winnesquatocket River but his loved ones believed foul play was involved and wanted a further investigation. They found it strange that Greg had a smashed eye socket, a damaged nose, cuts on his left hand, and bruising on his right hip and legs. He also had one small hole on each shin. Strangely, the white t-shirt Greg was wearing under his blue dress shirt was completely brown, whereas the dress shirt was clean. At this point, stories began circulating about an alleged altercation that took place at the club that night, but the details were unclear because his friends weren't saying much about the events of the night. Greg was not known to be a heavy drinker and usually limited himself to no more than three drinks. Even his friends that night didn't recall Greg drinking very much, but when his blood alcohol level was tested, it showed he was at 0.25. Most states' legal intoxication level is 0.08 or higher. There's a lot of controversy surrounding this case. First of all, the medical examiner, Dr. William Cox, had previously been found guilty of numerous illegal activities after he was caught personally profiting from autopsies in Ohio and then hid the extra income from authorities. He pleaded guilty in 1996 and was ordered to pay $138,000 in restitution. There's also the fact that the Red Room Club owners were Rebecca and Sean Carroll. Sean was a detective with the Providence Police Department. On top of that, the land the club sits on was owned by Detective Mark Sacco, who was the first detective investigating the case. Greg's family felt this was a conflict of interest and didn't believe he should be investigating the case. There were no reports of police interviewing a single witness at the bar, not even during the first 24 hours he was missing. At the time, the Providence Police Department had been under repeated fire for severe misconduct and illegal activities, including sexual assaults, 
drug trafficking, and many other unlawful activities. Also, numerous officers, including a school resource officer, were arrested for dealing drugs. One officer was convicted in 2010, the same year of Greg's alleged murder, for sexually assaulting a teenage girl while on duty after offering her a ride outside a nightclub and taking her to an unoccupied police substation. The officer left DNA behind and was seen on video surveillance leaving alone. Several minutes later, his victim, who had been sleeping or passed out, woke up, left the substation shortly after 3 a.m., and made her way to a relative's house in South Providence, where a family member called 911. A few minutes later, three police officers showed up, including, ironically, her attacker, to take a complaint about the alleged incident, which he did. He was also previously charged with sexually assaulting a 10-year-old girl and physically assaulting the director of the DMV. He was also charged with trying to extort sex from a well-known prostitute while on duty. Despite this, he was kept on the force for 13 years before finally being put behind bars. Initially, the police report following Greg's death said his phone and keys were found in the club's parking lot. However, two days later, another version said the phone was found in Greg's pocket. Greg's family received the phone from the police, but it was broken into several pieces. They were told that technicians from the state crime lab were unable to retrieve any information from the phone because of water damage. So, his parents hired a computer forensics firm that recovered data from Greg's battered iPhone, indicating it was never in the water, contradicting the police reports. The firm, TechFusion, was also able to extract call logs, SMS logs, and messages from the phone, but it's unknown what information the techs recovered or if any of it was helpful to the investigation. The company came to the conclusion that the phone was deliberately broken into pieces in order to prevent information from being retrieved. To this day, the three so-called friends with Greg that night have refused to talk to his family about what happened at the bar. The family suspect somebody beat their son and later dumped him in the river. It was also known as an underground bar and was not advertised to the public. Immediately after his death, the owners changed the bar's name to Saints and Sinners Lounge. So what do y'all think? Was Greg murdered or just a victim of an unfortunate accident? Let me know in the comments below. Christina Lynn Bastion was born on July 8, 1981, to Cheryl Denny in Apple Valley, California. In her 20s, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder but was on medication and the condition was reportedly stable. When Christina was 34 years old, she was living in an apartment on Laguna Road in Apple Valley near her mother and four younger sisters. She was saving to buy a home while working towards a master's degree. After recently graduating from college, she became a freshman and sophomore English teacher at Silverado High School in Victorville. In the summer of 2015, Christina decided to get off her medication with the alleged approval of her physician and family because it had caused her to put on some weight. For a few months, Christina remained stable and thought, as a devout Christian, that God had healed her. She considered the journey a test of her faith. However, by the end of October 2015, things had started to unravel. She had been involved in a car accident that left her vehicle totaled. 
Then on October 29, 2015, someone tried to break into her home, causing her to start acting paranoid and erratic. At this point, she became too frightened to remain in her apartment, and on October 30th, she packed up her belongings and left. She then took her phone's SIM card out, broke the phone, and then strangely drove 350 miles to Phoenix, Arizona. The next morning, she called her mother from Phoenix to inform her where she was. Christina then drove back to Apple Valley to attend the Harvest Festival at the Apple Valley Faith Center, where her mother was the senior pastor. At the church, Christina reportedly told her brother-in-law that she didn't want to be Christina Bastion anymore and wanted to disappear. She also said she was considering taking a long break from her job to figure out what to do with her life. When the event ended, Christina drove to a friend's house in Apple Valley, where she was supposed to stay the night. At the time, her truck was loaded with personal belongings she had previously packed from her apartment. The next day, on November 1, 2015, Christina suddenly left her friend's house around 1.45 a.m. She took her dog, a white and tan Maltipoo named Coco, with her and drove away in her truck. She left her wallet, license, bank cards, and eyeglasses behind at her friend's house, which is strange considering her very poor eyesight. The next day, Christina's mother grew concerned when she received a call from someone who found some of Christina's belongings strewn along Highway 247 near Lucerne Valley and quickly filed a missing persons report. Her stuff was in a pile, and it appeared as if she drove to the opposite side of the road and dumped her belongings from the bed of the truck. Everything was there, including the bed liner, her cell phone, electric guitar, checks, artwork, and photos. On November 2, 2015, Christina's Dodge Ram pickup truck was found abandoned on a dirt road along Highway 62 in Morongo Valley, California. The truck, which was purchased the week prior, had scratches and dents on both sides and looked like it had been driven over rough desert terrain. The next day, a stranger found Coco alive nearly 70 miles from where the truck had been located. Nine days later, on November 11, 2015, a backpack containing pictures, medication, bills, and other items were found on a dirt road near Bear Valley Road and Central Roads. A bumper believed to be from her truck was also found along with the backpack. As of 2023, Christina has been missing for nearly seven years, and her loved ones believe she could be living as a homeless person. However, she has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Darlene Russell was born on October 5, 1959, and was one of 12 siblings. At some point during her youth, the family moved from Kentucky to a small house on First Street in Connorsville, Indiana. Darlene would then marry a man by the name of Jerry Hall, but the relationship wouldn't last, and the two would quickly separate. After the separation, he moved out of the area, and Darlene moved back into the family home with her mother. On September 19, 1981, 21-year-old Darlene was bar hopping with some friends and was seen that night at Jerry's Bar and the Lamplight Cafe. At 4.30 a.m., she decided to call it a night and was seen leaving Cozy Corner. This was the last time she was ever seen again, or was it? 
The lead detective in the case said that Darlene was last seen intoxicated outside the cozy corner, but her brother would later come out and say that the family actually saw her again after this. According to the brother and Darlene's mother, they spoke with Darlene the very next morning. She told them she was going to hitchhike with some friends to Kentucky. She then told her mom goodbye and said she would see her for her birthday in a week or so. However, two days later, the family received some devastating news. On September 22, 1981, a passerby on the Fayette County Line Road in Wayne County noticed a pair of blue jeans tangled in a barbed wire fence bordering a field. When he pulled up to investigate and looked over the fence, he found Darlene's partially clothed body. An autopsy revealed that she had suffered several blows to the head and a fatal knife wound. The medical examiner estimated she was pregnant and had likely been killed around two days earlier. This would put her date of death on Saturday the 20th, the day her family last spoke to her. She allegedly had made plans to tell the father about the pregnancy, but never got the chance. Unfortunately, it's not known if DNA from the unborn child was ever collected. The fact that the Fayette County Road is not heavily traveled and that Darlene was discovered only around eight miles from where she was last seen led to speculation that her killer may have been a local person. Some even speculate that the father of her baby could be responsible for her death. In 2013, it appeared they might have a break in the case when an anniversary article published in the Connersville News Examiner generated two tips that contained valid information not previously made public. However, those tips never led to any arrest, and as of 2023, Darlene's murder remains unsolved. Brandon Dwayne Blancet was born on September 14, 1987. He later attended Hazen High School in Hazen, Arkansas, and studied computer technology in college. At the age of 34, Brandon was divorced, living in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and working at Bumper to Bumper Auto, Planet Fitness, and Plaza Tire. Those who knew him described him as an energetic and dedicated hard worker who loved the Arkansas Razorbacks and his dog, Sandy. After both his parents passed away, he turned to religion while trying to fight the demons in his life. In 2021, Brandon was allegedly romantically involved with several different women at the same time. It was also speculated that Brandon was possibly suffering from an untreated mental illness. On October 10, 2021, he and his girlfriend, Taylor, reportedly got into an argument at her house on Wildwood Point in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He left her home and drove to the home of his ex-girlfriend, Tierra, in Sage Meadows before 5 p.m., but was only there briefly. He was described as very intoxicated and talking erratically and talking about the Bible and religion. He then left, allegedly seeking drugs. A couple of hours later, he arrived back at his girlfriend's house, and soon after, she said he left on foot appearing to be under the influence of a controlled substance or, at a minimum, alcohol or both. She reported that he walked away from her house at about 7.50 p.m., going northbound, and disappeared and has never been seen since, strangely leaving his wallet, phone, car, and car keys behind. She also texted her mother at this point, letting her know that he had just walked away. 
For the next few days, Taylor attempted to file a missing person report at the local sheriff's office and police department. Finally, an official statement was made four days after he disappeared. Later that day, authorities arrived at his home for a welfare check, but there was no sign of Brandon. During the initial investigation, the lead detective was informed that Brandon was involved in a similar scenario less than two years earlier, but a friend had located him. Rumors began circulating, and one of those rumors was that Brandon was gone on a hunting trip, but that turned out to be false. Some speculated that Brandon may have relapsed the weekend he went missing, as he had troubles in the past with addiction, but was believed to have been clean for some time. The day before he went missing, he reportedly became very angry and beside himself when the Arkansas Razorbacks lost a football game by only one point against Ole Miss. Brandon was known to bet on sports from time to time, so maybe he was upset because he lost a bet on a game. The area he went missing from had surveillance cameras, but he was allegedly not seen on any of the footage. This helped narrow down directions that he didn't walk, but would not cover every angle if he did indeed walk away from the house that night. In fact, he is seen on video surveillance returning to Taylor's home after 7 p.m. Her house is in a populated subdivision, and the ring camera across the street documented his car arriving at her house, but the footage is dark because it was recorded at nighttime. Then, a person, who appears to be a man, comes out of her house, gets in Brandon's car, and pulls it into the garage. That man could have been Brandon, or it could have been someone else. The ring camera does not show Brandon walking away from the front of the home. Therefore, he would have walked away from the back of the house, leaving his car, phone, and other belongings behind, which is hard to wrap your head around. Over a month after he went missing, his girlfriend dropped off his cell phone, laptop, and other belongings at the police department. It's unclear why the police didn't request these items at the beginning of the investigation or why she wouldn't have volunteered these important items as soon as he disappeared. Many who knew Brandon and those in the community have organized several search efforts. Another rumor began circulating that his friend, whom he hadn't had much contact with for four months before going missing, was romantically involved with Brandon's girlfriend, Taylor. There have also been a lot of finger-pointing, accusations, and strong speculations regarding possible foul play and at whose hands. However, it is important to note that after Brandon went missing, his guns were missing from his home that had been passed down to him from his grandfather. His house was in severe disarray, but it's unclear if that's how he usually lived. His safe appeared to have been pried on, but other valuables were untouched. A window screen was found on the ground, the door to his house had been damaged from someone attempting to break in, and the gate on his fenced-in yard was left open. The house appeared deplorable, and I believe it was his grandparents' house passed down to him, and he may not have stayed there very often. Therefore, the damage to the home may not have been recent damage. During the investigation, it was revealed that the two women in Brandon's life, Taylor and Tierra, had been harassing each other, and both have been uncooperative in the investigation. Taylor allegedly acted nervous after Brandon went missing and didn't want to discuss it. Many speculate that she knows more about Brandon's disappearance than she has let on. Do you think Brandon was the one driving his car when he returned? 
Do you think that he walked away from her house, leaving his belongings behind, never to return? Do you think that he met with foul play inside or after he left her home? Was Brandon having a mental health episode amplified by a controlled substance and harmed himself? Let me know in the comments below what you think. As of November 2022, Brandon has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.